Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the HVMN Health Via Modern Nutrition Podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu, and I'm super excited to bring on the guest of honor today because we met in person earlier this year when it was still okay to go and see and shake hands in person. Uh, we met at the Metabolic Health Summit for the first time, but I've been a big fan and following this gentleman's work for quite some years, and we realized that we have a lot of mutual friends and connections. So without further ado, let me introduce Rob Wolf. Thanks for coming on the program, Rob. Huge honor to be here. Thanks for having me. So where to begin? I, I think for folks that don't know about your work or your background, I think when people hear paleo, when people hear about some of the early discussion, early interest, early popularization of some of these biochemistry, nutritional biochemistry concepts, physiology concepts. I think you deserve a lot of credit for bringing that to the mainstream as, you know, the paleo solution, a lot of these early books and podcasts. How would you best describe yourself? Because I think that just following your work, you have a lot of projects, a lot of uh, things going on. So how would you best introduce yourself these days? Oh, man, I, that, that's a good question. I'm definitely not a biohacker. So I, I kind of get a little prickly at that term. I don't think there are hacks in biology. I think there's understanding biology. And then if, if there's anything, like I, I really like the interface between evolution, economics, and kind of thermodynamics, like the considerations of trade-offs. You know, if you are very fast twitch, very explosive, that could be great in some circumstances, could be terrible if your life's ambition is to be a great marathon runner, you know? And, and so one of my, my kind of prickly elements around biohacking is this notion that there's kind of like one best situation, whereas I think all of this is really better viewed as trade-offs. You know, we, we may uh, really drive super hard on our performance, but that may have some consequences with regards to our health and longevity and, you know, kind of, kind of vice versa. So I'm not entirely sure how I would, would actually characterize myself, but I, you know, by training, I was, uh, did a biochemistry undergrad, did some lipidology research in, uh, kind of cancer in autoimmune circles was very, very early in the CrossFit scene, actually co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world and worked with, with CrossFit for a number of years. And that was kind of a, an amazing opportunity to work with just thousands and thousands of people and, and, uh, get a sense of really what did and did not work for, for people. And I definitely early on, kind of drifted away from the the more like elite athlete to the degree that I worked with with folks that I, I would consider kind of more elite athletes. It was more in the police, military, and fire scene. Um, and so that was kind of my elite performer experience, which I, I loved. And uh, then I just got really passionate about trying to help people who were suffering a host of different diseases, you know, autoimmunity, type two diabetes, uh, just, just the challenges of, of carrying around too much body weight. And I really felt like both of those things were very meaningful. And that if I did a good job, it could really improve the quality of life for people might even save their lives in, in some circumstances. So I, I've definitely been very, uh, I guess, kind of mission driven around that, that the work that I, I do, it's great if somebody gets excited about working with figure competitors or something like that, like that's, that's great, but that's never really spun my propeller that much. Like I, I love coming into a situation where I know that the impact I had was just profound on the individual. And that that's just been an incredible blessing to be able to have that woven into my work pretty much my whole career. 
hundred percent. And I think that's not even talking about a few best-selling books as well as a, a very popular podcast, which I think a lot of people and practitioners and hobbyists learn about some of these concepts. So I think I'm just still thinking in terms of looking at the phrase ketosis. The first time I Googled that probably five, six years ago, the first thing that came up on Google was diabetic ketoacidosis, right? This was like a deficient metabolic waste product. And now the ketogenic diet is one of the most popular diets and people are researching this for so many different indications. One thing that I want to reflect on in terms of the term biohacking, I think I have a similar qualm or misgivings about that same term. I think, especially being based in Silicon Valley, I think it's easy to ascribe, you know, what I do as kind of a biohacker. And the way I think about it is we're talking about human performance or human engineering from a systems engineering perspective, right? And I, I like how you describe thermodynamics and physics. And I think to me, that's where I think Silicon Valley or a technological engineering approach makes sense for human performance, where I would say that health and wellness seemed or was more holistic, intuitive, but there are more and more sensors that can quantify some of these things. Mm -hmm. And as an engineer by training, if you can measure it, you can optimize it. So right. my sense here is that we're in the early innings of biohacking, just like in the 80s and 70s, there was the early innings of computer hacking, the homebrew computing club, and everyone's a computer hacker. But now you have formal disciplines of software engineers, machine learning, data scientists, all these specific formalized, professionalized roles. And I think we're going to see the same thing happening within the human performance, health and wellness space, where you'll have people that are focused on cognitive psych psychological coaching or, you know, a, a cognitive engineer or a metabolic engineer. And I think you already start seeing that at some of the higher end echelons of performers, right? You have military formations, sport formations who have like a strength and conditioning coach and nutrition dietitian, you have a cognitive psychological coach. And, I, and so I think you already start seeing specializations within that, within that discipline. So 100% agree with you. I think yeah. biohacking just makes it seem like like hobbyist tinkers who are just like pounding random smoothies or, 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 or supplements. Right, and it's like, right. Yes, you know, that, that's interesting hypothesis generation with just like guinea pigs. But I think the way that I think you approach it and I think well, the way we approach it is let's do it as scientifically and evidence-driven as possible. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it, it's kind of cool. Uh, the greatest contributions I've seen over the maybe the last 10, 15 years have been engineers who have entered the health and medical space completely unencumbered with the baggage of a classical training in health and medicine. And because they've got that deep seat steeping in mathematics, physics, and just all, all the underpinnings of engineering, they can come in and look at medicine and, and get up to speed remarkably quickly and then look at it with completely new eyes, no baggage, and the benefit of, of arguably some of the best data analysis around. And so the, the people that I've learned the most from have been engineers and a couple of economists who have gotten into health and looked at all this stuff with a brand new set of eyes. And ironically, they usually end up kind of settling out in some sort of kind of a ancestral health, lowish carb, paleo, keto kind of kind of world. Not not a hundred percent, but they they typically see some really interesting benefits around optimizing nutrient density and and things like that, which just 
by default kind of drives you towards something that starts looking kind of like a ketogenic or kind of a paleo-ish type type diet. So yeah, let's start there. I mean, it sounds perhaps, for, especially for a lot of our listeners, like obvious or it's been known for a long time, but it was not that obvious in 2010. And, and probably earlier, as you're just personally tinkering and learning about this space, can we rewind the, the, the clock here and just give a sense of the cultural milieu, the understanding at the time? Because even in, again, just my time in the space in 2014, 15, just even Googling ketosis, it was not well understood at the time. So fast forward another five, 10 years back when you were starting to you know, play with these ideas, what was that like in, in that era? It's interesting. So the, I, I got into this because of a personal health crisis. I had ulcerative colitis at the ripe old age of 26 that was so bad that I was facing a bowel resection. And I knew enough about medicine. I was looking at either a PhD track or an MD track. And I, I knew enough that I, I was certain that I didn't want ulcerative colitis throughout my lifetime. Like the results are terrible. Surgery sucks. The medications are only slightly better as far as quality of life, but they don't really resolve the issue. And it was, it was interesting. My mother had suffered a host of health ailments throughout her life. And then one day her, her rheumatologist just ran a bunch of tests on her and he said, you know, you appear to be in, one, she was diagnosed with celiac. So this autoimmune, you know, gluten reactivity that damages the intestinal epithelia. But he said that in addition to that, she seemed to be reactive to grains, legumes, and dairy, which at the time I was, I was actually vegan and I was living up in Seattle working at the Fred Hutch cancer research center. And when my mom told me this, one, she described a lot of similar problems that I was having, ranging from gut problems to depression, high blood pressure. Like I, I was just a mess as, as was she, but I was sitting there thinking about that after I got off the phone and I was like, no grains, no legumes, no dairy. Like what on earth do you eat if you don't eat that? You know, and it was Especially as a vegan. kind of like, free uh, associative deal. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly as vegan, it's like, man, what in the world do you eat with that? But I was just thinking and thinking, I'm like, man, so grains and legumes and dairy, that's kind of agriculture. What did we eat before agriculture? And mind you, this was in 1998. So it, it's fairly far back. But then I had heard of some term, paleolithic diet. And so I went into my house, turned on my computer, waited for the squirrels inside it to spin and do their thing, turned on my dial up, waited for that to boot up. And then there was this new search engine called Google. And into Google, I put the term paleolithic diet and I found some work from two main people, Arthur Devaney, who's a retired economist who really got into this stuff quite early. And then Lauren Cordain, who's kind of the, the person who really took this paleo diet concept and kind of brought it into the 2000s. And everything that I read, uh, so much of it seemed to go back to this, this notion of um, genetic incompatibility with, with certain you know new foods, Neolithic foods, and really focused a lot on gut issues, uh, in particular celiac and nutrient deficiencies and whatnot. And so that was kind of my jumping in point. But what, what's interesting even beyond that, when I when I went to look for a book on this stuff, there, there were no paleo diet books written at this time. Uh, the closest things, uh, Dr. Michael Eads had written a book, Protein Power, and then there was the good old Atkins book. And Atkins' New Diet Revolution was the first thing that I tried, and I didn't need to lose weight. Um, right now, I'm about 170 pounds. 
at my low ebb of the, the ulcerative colitis, I was 130, 135 pounds. I, I had malabsorption so bad that like my hair was falling out, nails were split. I just was absorbing nothing that I ate. But when I, when I put all this stuff together, I, I was it, literally at my wits end. And I was kind of like, well, if I'm, I, th- I think I'm going to die anyway. So if I do this, like, you know, low carb, high, high fat diet, if that kills me, maybe it'll be a, a quicker mercy killing than what I'm experiencing. So I started into all this with, with really what is basically a, a higher protein ketogenic diet. And that worked remarkably well for me. And even when I wrote my first book, the, the topic of ketogenic diets was kind of a, a stepchild topic, ironically, as paleo really started taking off and getting popular. But if folks look back at my original book, I, I recommended a, a decent protein intake. I recommended that for the first 30 days that you top off carbohydrates at about 30 to 50 grams per day and then, you know, fill in fat as needed for energy levels and goals and whatnot. So even though it was um, paleo foods, it was really kind of recommended in what we would see is, is a ketogenic ratio or at least some sort of a modified Atkins ratio. And I, I learned over time that some people thrive on that. Other people need more, more carbs. Uh, you know, there's lots of variability there. But that for 22 years has largely been where, you know, kind of my home base that I, I stick to. I've done little forays where I'll experiment with things like safe starches and sweet potatoes and whatnot. And it's just never really worked out that well for me. Like if I stick mainly with, with meat and veggies, a little bit of fruit here and there, like post pre or post training, then I'll, I'll, I'll do okay with that. But uh, generally keeping carbs well below hundred grams per day. A little bit of variation with that, again, based off of activity. I'm almost 50, and I, I feel like I motor along pretty well. I still can uh, do a lot of old, old guy Brazilian jiu-jitsu and try to stay active in the gym and whatnot. And again, that's a very N equals one uh, you know, kind of story. I don't know if this is going to work the same way for everybody, but I have a sense that if people find an appropriate um, protein intake, glycemic load, and figure out a way to eat so that they can spontaneously maintain a, a, a an appropriate caloric intake. That some magic happens out of that. Hundred percent. And I, I'm curious in terms of that initial reception. Obviously, it made some best selling lists. So obviously, people read it. But I can imagine you also probably pissed some people off at the time. Or like, who is this guy who's you know doesn't necessarily have like the registered dietitian thing after his name? How was how was the response? How was the subsequent aftermath of putting out this, you know, pretty kind of a, a kind of a landmark flag in the, you know, in the sand in terms of, Hey, this is a, a new way to potentially look at our, our, uh, food pyramid. Oh, that's an interesting question. You know, when, when I released my book, there wasn't a, a paleo diet genre on Amazon or in bookstores. And after that, there was like my book definitely kind of cracked that that genre open it's interesting because i received so much positive feedback uh the book has now sold nearly a million copies it's been out for 10 years and i've just had so much favorable feedback and um i really did kind of go down like the gut health autoimmune scene because i it's just an area that i have a lot of passion for that those are the the things that really plague me both my mother and my wife's mother ended up dying due to rheumatoid arthritis complications so i mean you know we have some 
some very direct impact around that. And by and large, up until maybe about five years ago, it was just considered heresy that diet could have any impact in autoimmune conditions and even really gut issues. Like it, it's still, you can find tons of rheumatologists, tons of GI docs that will say your diet has absolutely no influence on that stuff. But we also now have a decent number of randomized control trials looking at interventions, specific carbohydrate diet, the autoimmune paleo diet, ketogenic diets for all of these, a, a host of conditions from multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis. So we're now going from a very anecdotal stage to getting into that, that more rigorous scientific stage. Possibly the most frustrating thing that I experienced was that people would say, this is all anecdote. And it was kind of like, okay, I, I acknowledge that. We don't have like tons of gold standard stuff. And there are people that will say a million anecdote, do not one ounce of data make, which makes me kind of crazy because it's, if, if we're having a, and I, I was in a public discussion with somebody who was really in this kind of evidence-based camp and they knew that they had this position and I actually brought a hammer. And I, as they were going on about this, I like stood up and walked over and held a ham over their foot. And they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm going to drop this hammer on your foot but it's purely going to be anecdotal as to whether or not it hurts. <laughs> and then we'll do it a dozen, two dozen times. And it's still going to be anecdote. And it, it, you know, it, it, I think it was reasonably well received, but we do need to be very careful about fooling ourselves with this stuff. But virtually nothing happens in science on a first principles basis. Almost always there's an empirical observation that then we back into with, with uh, you know, models that then we're able to tweak and refine and, and have predictive value. Like that's how quantum mechanics was, was established. You know, it wasn't a first principles derivation. We had things like the, you know, the dual slit, you know, experiment and stuff like that. And people- Yeah, it's not intuitive. Like, like you, would not, you would not write this given human intuition. Yeah. And, and so that has been a frustrating thing, but it's been- cool to see to be in this long enough to go from a purely anecdotal stage with this information to now transitioning into a much more rigorous science stage and you know it's interesting uh, the the paleo diet is cool and i think there's a lot of interesting concepts there but i think the ketogenic diet is really going to be the benchmark that we look at going forward from kind of a a nutritional intervention perspective because it is this quantifiable binary state are you in or are you not, you know, and people can quibble over whether or not 0.5 millimolar, you know, ketone levels is ketosis or not, but it, we can at least establish that. Whereas what is a keto or a, a paleolithic diet? Like how high is the protein? How low are the carbs? What are the fat sources? You know, is it mainly fish or mainly red meat? Like there's so many moving parts there. It's, it's kind of infinite. And so I think that that's part of the reason why the paleo concept within research circles kind of flamed out, but it, what you can really pull from the paleo diet concepts, we, we really probably should try to find an appropriate glycemic load for what, what works best for us. There are some kind of evolutionary principles like the protein leverage hypothesis that, that kind of describes uh, seeking nutrient density and whatnot. That's a pretty good benchmark for informing how much protein we should have within our day-to-day our -day diet. 
And then from there, just be aware that some foods can be immunogenic. Some people do great with dairy. Other people do terribly with dairy, you know, and then we have the, you know, different reactivities like gluten or nightshades. And so you can strip out a lot of the, the kind of caveman goofiness of the paleo diet and just kind of have that waiting in the wings around some sort of a well-formulated ketogenic diet. So if somebody's eating a a ketogenic diet and they're still having joint inflammation and we look at what they're consuming and like, it's a ton of dairy, a ton of cream. Let's pull that out for a month and then see how you do and reintroduce it. And again, although that's, that's anecdotal, that's also how clinical medicine occurs. When we give someone a statin or a glucophage or something, we don't know exactly how that individual is going to respond. We, we clinically assess whether or not the the results or the desired results, whether or not the risk reward story is favorable. And these are published in peer review as well. These are clinical case studies. Yeah. And it, it, and this is one of the things that I, I definitely can get prickly about, you know, when people start talking about anecdote versus randomized control trial and whatnot. Like I, I, I acknowledge that we need some rigor there, but at the same time, if we get totally wrapped around the axle of only allowing randomized control trials to define our whole life, then the whole, the whole, uh, I don't want to call it industry, but the whole utility of off-label pharmaceuticals is gone. Like you, you can't justify the use of any off-label pharmaceutical for any use if you're really staunchly defending this thing that we need a randomized control trial. And that would ruin our world. Like it would make things so slow and so onerous. We've already taken a drug through a vetting process and kind of establish some boundaries of safety and efficacy. And oh, by the way, mechanistically or even empirically, we see it potentially having some value over in this other area. Why don't we just fast track that and explore it and do good clinical research on it so that we can establish efficacy, but we don't need to re retrace all of that in these different situations. And some of the more successful drugs that are being used you know, like glucophage being used in some of these anti-aging interventions. We're not doing a, a, a trial specific to, well, it, it's just kind of a very different kind of, kind of landscape when, we, when we're able to open this stuff up and be both scientifically rigorous, but also open to that empirical input. 100%. I think you just dropped a lot of interesting nuggets that I'd like to unpack with you. And first is this, I would say... I think there's this uh, putting on the pedestal of an RCT, the randomized controlled trial. And I think we forgot as a community that so much progress in science was made by people with bold hypotheses that didn't have RCT data to justify, but there was some interesting signal. And then they built experiments to prove out mechanisms. And mm -hmm. then uh, it was kind of sealed at the end with an RCT. Right. And I think where people have become overzealous is that if there's no RCT, it's pseudoscience, it's fake news, like don't even talk about it. And it's like, look, the part of science is generating hypotheses. And I think anecdata, anecdotes are great ways to generate hypotheses. And I think it's overly foolish to say, okay, there's thousands of people that are claiming some benefit from a strange diet, like a carnivore diet. It's like, and, and I think you could say the same thing with vegans. Like mm -hmm. there's a mm -hmm. lot of people claiming really interesting results from having a vegan diet. And it's like, okay, these are all anecdotes, but what can we do to now explore and structure some experiments that better answer 
the observations that we see. That's a very physics approach, right? Okay, we see the yeah. dual slit experiment for quantum mechanics. If light was just photons, you wouldn't see like this waveform at the end. What possibly could explain this run more experiments? And I think that that's, I think the open-mindedness that I think scientists need to just rehab now. And I think it's just like, and maybe it's an overreaction towards, I think, a lot of just misinformation out there where scientists feel like they need to just say like, okay, we're going to just be super, super pure now. So I, I think it's a complicated social problem that's infecting or, or polluting or corrupting kind of the, the, the academy where it's like they're very almost yeah. narrow-minded now where I would say like the proper scientific approach is to be quite open-minded and try to reconcile observations into a framework, a scientific framework that actually explains all these specific observations. Whereas I feel like, again, I think I agree with you. It's like, it feels like, oh, interesting observation. Is it an RCT? No, then shut up. Right. Like that's just <laughs> BS. And it's like, look, like there's something that's interesting here. Maybe you can, we're not claiming that this is like a universal thing, but like our framework should be able to explain this within the overall context. Right. Right. Um, right. Yeah, again, from a physics analogy, like we can talk about, uh, you know, star formation, but once we get some threshold beyond some atomic scale, then we can't really explain it. We need to have a new framework to explain it. And I think a similar open-mindedness needs to happen in nutrition. I think especially with nutrition because everyone eats, everyone has an opinion of how they feel after eating a pizza versus a donut versus a steak. I think right. it's like very easy for a lot of people to comment. So where I think yeah. with physics, it's like, I don't, I don't understand multivariate calculus. Like I can't really comment. So, uh, so I think like, that's like that, that's the, that's a storm that we're in as, as an industry, as, as a community. It, this is a possibly interesting example of that. At least it, it, it's helpful for me when we look at the, the half-life of, of caffeine clearance within humans, the average is eight hours. But you have some people that clear it as quickly, you, you know, get to a half-life. So if you consume 100 milligrams, you know, the average is that eight hours later, people have 50 milligrams of caffeine circulating. Some people do that in four hours and other people, it takes as long as 36 hours. That is just a massive spread. And so then when we, we start trying to dig in and say, well, is caffeine good or bad for any given individual? And some people are like, man, I had a coffee yesterday and I'm still awake two days later. And people are like, oh, that's, that's rubbish. That's ridiculous. And then you look at the toxicology and the clearance, you know, kinetics on this. It's like, no, that actually makes sense. Like this is a three standard deviations outside the norm. There's not many of those people, but we're not that surprised that there are pharmaceutical interactions like that in, in these massive distributions. But then to your point, we get back to diet and there's supposed to be one diet that works for everybody. And because one person doesn't do well with high protein, then like that, that should freak out the, the protein only people or one person really needs a lot of protein. It, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because we, we ignore all of that individual vari variation that, that we layer on like the gut microbiome, the way that the gut microbiome modifies our own genetics, the, 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 you know, the interaction of light dark cycles on both our genetics and our microbiome, like it gets infinitely complex almost immediately. And so this is where like having these good heuristics, these big picture, you know, kind of, uh, directives that we can use to start getting closer to what our bullseye is, but hopefully the, the heuristic gets us maybe 80% there. And then it's largely empirical tinkering. That's going to bring us to that, that final 20%.
100%. And I think you already see this happening at the elite performance level. Yeah. I've, I've talked to folks that, you know, you know, won't mention specific names, but like get like for sure, you know, their credentials, their backgrounds, their training, what they've gone through, super high performers. And a lot of the folks there are saying that I don't even care that much about RCT data anymore because what are the RCTs even run on? That population is not relevant to right. LeBron James, right? Like LeBron James is like three standard deviations better, like superior in a number of formats and attributes than the average human. Right. Uh, if you're running an experiment on a bunch of average shows like me versus comparing, you know, is that data relevant to LeBron James or, right. you know, a special operations soldier or a firefighter who's just out there, you know, especially in California fighting fires right now, making sure we don't, you know, live in more of a smoky environment than we already right. are. So I, I think that's where I, I, I'm glad we're having this conversation where I think it's like we want science to be even more precise. I think the way we're even describing it is just more precise in the way that the quote unquote defenders of RCTs are because if you can really nitpick the population that we're sampling in these RCTs are not even potentially relevant to a lot of other folks, right? Like a lot of the critiques is that most clinical trials are done on men. And then oftentimes if we're doing psychology researches, these are done on a certain income bracket, uh, mm -hmm. social class bracket, because a lot of the population are just psychology students that are, you know, get class credit for doing these RCTs. Right. And then there's a, a whole nother conversation about race. Are we just selecting for a certain ethnicity and that's 90% of the clinical data. And if you're another ethnicity, does that same intervention affect you? And it's like, are genetic uh, personal kind of fingerprint is likely going to matter for some of these interventions. So if we really want to nitpick on the applicability, the translational ability of RCTs, there's a lot of holes to kick around there. So does that say that RCTs are useless? No, I would not say that either you or I would, would claim that. But I would say that are RCTs the one and only way to find truth? And I think the answer there is uh, it's a very useful tool, but there right. are other tools in the scientific toolkit to find truth. This may be a terrible analogy, but I, I think about it like a giant slalom skier and the RCTs are kind of the gates that keep you on track going down the hill. But man, there's a whole lot of snow and a whole lot of unknown and be in between them. But it's like, oh, there's another benchmark. There's another benchmark. And sometimes it can take you off course or, or, or whatever. But it, it's a, at best kind of um, signposts that kind of keep us out of what did Carl Sagan call it? The, the demon haunted land. Like when we start getting into mysticism and, and literal pseudoscience, which isn't difficult to do. Like it, it, I think Richard Feynman said, uh, everybody's easy to... to uh, how did he say it? Um, it's easy to fool everybody and there's no one easier to fool than yourself, yourself you know? Yep. And so you combine both of those things. So this is where the scientific rigor is valuable, but just having, being able to step back a little bit and kind of acknowledge the, both the value and the limitations of the RCTs and still be able to make forward progress. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think that's like a nice way to kind of end this little discussion topic in terms of, yeah, let's not become overall witch doctors. You right. Know? I mean, right. there's, there's clearly value to, control groups, intervention groups, controlling as many variables as possible and trying to just correct for one. But I think the thing is that humanity is so diverse. It's very expensive and hard to run all these experiments on across all the variables that we care about. So we are limited by the economics of physics, the practicality of what we can even do in terms of experiments. So right. um, let's, you know, 
collate the whole collective body of evidence to make the best recommendations for each individual. One thing that I thought was very interesting and, and is very similar to how I think about a ketogenic diet versus paleo other variations of low carb or carb restriction is that ketogenic diet is, I would say less of a diet, but just a target physiological metabolic state to target, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like there's some mm-hmm. ketone threshold that you want to be reaching. And for me, it, it, it doesn't, it potentially doesn't matter how you get there. Exactly. Yep. Right. And yep. I think that that's a little path bit independent. Yeah. Right. And that's yep. a little bit different from like, okay. And I think that you bring up a good point. Like what is a paleolithic diet? You know, maybe my ancestors in East Asia had a different paleolithic diet than your ancestors in, I don't know, Europe or, yep. you know, our ancestors in Africa. Right. So even like that, that definition is like imprecise, but if you can have a biomarker, a measurable marker to actually benchmark a quote unquote physiological state, that seems to be a more consistent way to do science or build frameworks or build understanding. I love to unpack that point a little bit more. Cause I think it is, uh, I mean, I think that there's a lot of credit to, I think, even just bringing up the Paleolithic concept, because I think that opened up just a lot of exploration around what our ancestors did. And I think that's a very powerful tool to understand not just diet, but just our lifestyles. And I think, right. this, and I think, I think, I think the paleo diet was really brings a lot of credit because I think it just kind of re-brought this Lindy concept of what was proven over thousands of years probably has some merit to it. I love to just unpack that a little bit more in terms of how, you know, the, the differences in terms of like diets versus physiological states. And then also like the translatability of this notion of ancestral patterns that we should be learning from, or at least generating hypotheses from. Yeah. And, and, you know, even though I'm just a huge fan of, you know, the paleo diet concept and evolutionary biology and whatnot, all of that stuff only can be used for hypothesis generation. Like it answers nothing for us. Like that's literally where the process in my mind begins. And I think that that's where the paleo diet concept is kind of run afoul where, where people will do some kind of, uh, just so reenactment stories. And they're like, well, clearly you should do X, Y, Z because, you know, ancestral man did that. And it's like, well, let's explore that. Let's see if we can find some modern uh, equivalents and and benchmarks to kind of explore that. And again, you know, like nutrient density seems to be a pretty common feature. Um, Also just in our, our kind of interplay between our physiology and our psychology, Game theory and thermodynamics suggest that we should be wired to eat as much food as possible while doing as little as possible. If that's true, and there's, you know, again, protein leverage hypothesis, optimum foraging strategy, all of that is true with every other organism on the planet. So we'll, we'll assume that it's, it's true for us. And if that is true, then it's ridiculous to suggest that people should be counseled to eat less and move more. Like that is just not going to work. We need some other types of strategies that that allow us to bypass the highly processed, uh, hyper palatable food environment that we live in. So that's where I think that some of these ancestral models can be really helpful for, you know, particularly again, like an engineering perspective, like what are some of the problems that we want to deal with? Well, people chronically overeating is a pretty big deal. You know, the Congressional Budget Office in 2005 had a report that suggested by 2030, 2035, the U.S. will be bankrupt from diabetes-related costs. 
And when I read that in 2005, that seemed like a long ways away. When I think about it now, it's not that not yeah. that far off, you know? I mean, we're on track too with three quarters of us are overweight, obese. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that those are some really valuable tools that we can use to start unpacking this and asking some different uh, questions. And it, it may require some very different, like kind of societal level interventions. We may need to really rethink like our, our subsidies that go into our food system. Like should folks be given an easier time manufacturing hyperpalatable, highly processed foods? You know, I, I think we should make that as hard as possible for those folks and try to figure out how to align incentives in a, in a very different way. And, you know, this, this again, when we do put on a little bit of that evolutionary lens, we should, we should definitely like something that should be fairly easy to defend we probably shouldn't be in a chronically overfed state all the time. Like basically, you, you know, I don't think vegan or anybody is going to argue that point. Okay. So what does that mean? And what, what, you know, what are the ramifications of it? Well, if we're in a not chronically overfed state, maybe that means we're eating a certain macronutrient ratio. Maybe that means that we're eating on a certain time schedule, you know, and so some other interesting things start popping up. And, and uh, interestingly, this really overlays with the things that we see that correlate well with, with both health and longevity. We see some nod towards calorie restriction, some nod towards time-restricted eating, and then also just the nuts and bolts of some sort of a, a carbohydrate-restricted diet. But I, I do think that these are some some ways that desirable metabolic state that is kind of ketosis, we can arrive at that a variety of ways. And we should be kind of excited about and celebrating the fact that we've got a lot of different ways to get there and then figure out what is kind of the optimum time spent there, you know, depending on what the, the desired goal is. Um, but, it, but for sure, spending all of our time in a, a chronically overfed state, we sh that should be pretty well recognized that, that that is not the goal. Like we should be endeavoring to do something other than that, at least some of the time. Yeah. And it, it just makes sense from biology 101 in terms of homeostasis, right? Yeah. Your body tries so hard to maintain balance. And just like you don't want to be over pumping your gas tank with more gasoline. It's a very, I would say a very mechanistic, but similar analogy here. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the question on subsidies is an interesting conversation and maybe we'll talk about that in terms of your most latest book, but I just want to just tease into it here a little bit in the sense that like the incentive structure for the government or policy really needs to be sharp. And I think that it maybe was fine to subsidize corn and, and some of these crops in our last generations when right. famine was one of the biggest killers of humanity throughout yep. history. But we are not in the medieval ages where famine is killing us, right? Right. Maybe they're in some parts of the world where there's not a lot of accessibility to food, right? And we're not, we're not talking about that group. Uh, but I would still, again, say that the amount of calories produced in this world is more than a surplus. It's right. just like we're not evenly distributing it closely enough. So maybe to solve that famine problem, we needed to subsidize some crops, some types of like very cheap calorie sources that are good enough. But now we're in the opposite problem where what's killing us is chronic overfeeding, essentially. Yep. Uh, I think to your point. And what should we do now from a policy perspective and incentives perspective to resolve that? And I think, I think 
potentially with you know some of your latest book with with uh, with uh, agriculture and, and domestication of animals, we're starting to understand what some of these ideas could look like. And I think that's something that is uh, personally in, in, interesting to me. We'll, we'll talk about that. We'll bookmark that topic. But just like talking just about ancestral observations or evolutionary biology as a hypothesis generating tool, uh, I, I think like that tool set has actually shifted how I think about my daily lifestyle where, yeah, ancestrally, I would not be staring at an LED screen for seven hours a day <laughs> right. and on my butt. I would probably not sit in the same dark cave or maybe swap between two dark caves, which right. is your home, your office, and maybe your gym. I would probably do more than just do that. So uh, my sleeping schedule might be a little bit different. So I've used ancestral observations as a way to just shift my own lifestyle. I'm curious if you have similar uh, lifestyle changes that, that you've adapted beyond just diet, right? So I think diet is like the kind of main thing we're talking about, but I'm curious, like, are you, any other inspiration that you've seen that translates across lifestyle? Yeah, you know, definitely that, that, that light piece, like that circadian biology, light exposure piece. Um, I, I was fortunate. I read a, a, a it, it's kind of a wacky book, but it's very good. It's called lights out sleep, sugar and survival. And it was published in 2001 and uh, evolutionary biologist, a guy who's an evolutionary biologist and a PhD in physics. So like he had a really deep steeping on the, the kind of biophysics of all this stuff, advocated a ketogenic diet, but they were really geeked out on our photo period, you know, and the damage that occurs with like being up at 11 o'clock at night, having, you know, stadium lighting, you know, shining in your eyes and what that would do for your circadian biology and suppressing melatonin production and whatnot. So I would say, you know, like the, the diet has become somewhat habitual and background for me, but the, you know, having two, two young kids, uh, six years old and eight years old, I've been doubly aware of things like screen time, getting the girls outside, getting sun on their person. We don't slather them with sunscreen. Like when when they go outside, I, I set this uh, D-Minder app, which takes your latitude, what your skin type is, and then depending on, you know, what type of day it is, it'll tell you how long you can be out, you know, before you start uh, getting some some skin damage. And so we, we use that, and it usually buys the girls about 40 minutes each side uh, before we'll put on a rash guard and maybe a hat and stuff like that. But man, the kids are just really healthy. Like they're super tall. They're really healthy. Their teeth uh, uh, all came in much more effectively than mine did. Like their dentist was like, I think they're going to have plenty of room for their wisdom teeth. Like they, they won't have to get their wisdom teeth extracted. Yeah. So it, it's interesting, you know, and it's that. Uh, I, I think guess, that's, a, that's like a super interesting point I want to interject on. Yeah. Where I've been reading a lot around just the jaw formation and mm-hmm. why. I mean, why do so many of us have to get our wisdom teeth removed? Like were we so evolved poorly to like literally need jaw surgery when we pass 20? Like, and right. so many of us have like gone through that and it's, and it's like, wow, if you actually chew what was interesting, con- consistent, your jaw yeah. actually grows and expands. And it's like, ah, oh, interesting. And then the sunlight aspect, I actually got into a little Twitter tiff with uh, a, a big Twitter personality where he recommended that you wear sunscreen anytime you go outside. And I'm like, right. look, like that's I, I wouldn't recommend that. Like again, let's not get sunburned. I don't want us to all become, you know, wrinkly and be 
purple in terms of just being lobsters. Right. But we're already so deficient as a society on vitamin D. And you're saying, hey, put on SPF 50 any moment you step outside. And even that outside time is so limited in our modern context, especially with different ethnicities where uh, you already have a lot of melanin content. Yeah, you're telling yeah. like folks with dark skin to put on sunscreen when you even need more sunscreen to even activate your vitamin D synthesis. I, I, I think it's completely from a place of good, uh, of caring, but it's just misinformed in my opinion. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, just uh, we just had, again, very preliminary, but this um, report that folks with adequate vitamin D levels, they didn't get hospitalized with COVID. They didn't die from COVID, you know, and this was across like seemingly all age ranges. Like it was just jaw dropping. And this is one of these public health kind of like, like zingers that it influenza as a baseline, which we've dealt with for ages, you know, it, it's well established that vitamin D levels dramatically alter both the susceptibility and the severity. Um, and virtually any disease that you care to consider, vitamin D levels end up really, you know, influencing it. Uh, uh, just um, depression and cognitive status. And it, and it seems like getting vitamin D from the sun works even better and does a lot more than just taking supplemental vitamin D, although the supplemental vitamin D is valuable too. But that's where there's this middle ground between not turning yourself into a leather handbag by, by tanning, but then also, you know, being afraid of the energy source that has driven all life on earth for four and a half billion years. You know, it's like, yeah. should we really be terrified of the sun? Like, uh, you, you know, for real, like that's something that we should just be like avoiding at all costs that that seems a little short sighted. Yeah. hundred percent. And I think, uh, yeah. And I think that's, again, I think where I think hopefully these conversations just help unpack some of the headline recommendations that I think are done out of good intention, good intention but just but yeah, mistranslated poor. and misinformed. Yeah. yeah. Um, anything else in terms of like workout? Like one thing that I've tried to incorporate more is I just have like kettlebells around my desk and I mm -hmm. try to just like fit in some exercise throughout my work day. Yeah. Like I'm like, I wish I could just be uh, playing around on a, on a playground <laughs> right. for a living. Right. Um, but that's not realistic for 99% of us who, right. you know, do have, have jobs, Real work. right? Like, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's one thing that I try to just do, just incorporate just more uh, movement. I mean, I'm in a standing desk. I try to not to sit as much. Anything that you've adopted or found especially effective in terms of kind of trying to mimicking more ancestral working environment? You know, I, I don't know that. So the movement side, I, I would say is, is comparatively poorly informed or like, I don't look to it as much for, uh, uh, you know, an ancestral backing, I guess I kind of go a little bit more into kind of the mechanisms of strength and conditioning. Um, there is a little insight there. Like when we look at non-Westernized populations, they age very differently than Westernized populations. And there's a lot that goes into that, but, um, sarcopenia and loss of muscle mass is kind of the, a really hallmark feature. And although everybody loses muscle mass with age, including non-Westernized populations, the, you know, the Western populations hit age 30 and then it just starts really dropping off where it's the, the health span and, and lifespan are much more tightly uh, tied together in non-Westernized populations. And it does seem like adequate protein intake, some amount of, of ketosis because uh, ketogenic diets, although 
are not any better at building muscle mass. They seem to be disproportionately good at maintaining muscle mass, yep, particularly in, interesting in anti-catabolic you know, effects. Yeah, yep. the anti-catabolic thing is really interesting. And then it kind of upregulates like autophagy, but it does it in kind of a, a very specific way. So I really look to what are the things that I can do that will help maintain muscle mass in general, but particularly those those big type two B motor units, you know, with aging and it's, it's, um, either lifting a heavy object or taking a lighter object and moving it very quickly. Yep. And that definitely informs a lot of what I do. And then, um, maybe two and a half, three years ago, I got into this stuff called FRC functional range conditioning. And it, it looks at our joint integrity and, and, strengthening and mobilizing around the joints with the same degree that of, of scrutiny that we would think about a squat, a deadlift, a power clean. Like it's really interesting. Uh, Dr. Andreo Spina, who's the founder of FRC would be an amazing podcast guest guy is just brilliant. And he's super geeked out on evolutionary biology too. So he, he would be a fun one, but you know, again, that stuff I wouldn't say is like necessarily super directly informed with this ancestral template other than it's clear that sitting in one position, you know, our body conforms to that position. Like the, the, uh, the soft tissue, the bones even begin to remodel around these postures that we maintain a lot. And so that kind of suggests that we would do well to be in a lot of different positions throughout the day, you know, as much as, as we can kind of pull off and, and not be homeless at the, at the same time. So, you know, but it, it's interesting. I think community and socialization also can be well informed from, from kind of that ancestral health template. When you look at, at uh, people who have adequate community, it, it seems to be as protective as smoking versus not smoking. So Super I, great point. Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting piece. So I think things like that, you know, um, it's stuff that we generally kind of know, but when we ask the question, well, where did that come from? It's like, well, it's part of our hunter-gatherer past, you know, and, it, and again, it's not that we have to go crazy over that. It's not that we all have to live in a hut or something, but, you know, if you're feeling down and out and you're, you know, you may be successful, you make lots of money but you're just depressed and your life kind of sucks and you look around and you're like, man, I have no good friends. I have no good social interaction. And then you join a jujitsu school and, and, you know, for me, it's physical contact first. Like I, I get a hug from like 20 people every time I, I go to go to jujitsu, that hug involves them trying to choke me. But I mean, there's just some physical contact there and then there's like the locker room towel snapping of just giving each other a hard time and all that type of stuff, which that's an interesting way of showing affection and that people care about you. You know, if somebody is completely apathetic to you, they're not even going to bother to tease you, you know? So it's this interesting way of, of showing affection. And then when we've needed help in our lives, our, our extended community, largely through jujitsu, those are the first people that I call. And like those people will will bleed for me and I'll do the the same thing for them. And, and, uh, when I haven't had that in my life, I've always had plenty of work. I've always had plenty of goals to go after, but when I haven't had people that I love and that I can, I can be challenged by and interact with, then my life kind of sucks. Like it's kind of miserable and it doesn't matter what next New York times bestselling book you stick in the queue. There's still just this hollow feeling in, inside me. But then when I have that community and, and, uh, the challenges of maintaining a community, 
I'm a happy person. Like it, it makes me far more resilient. I think it's really well stated and I think it's undervalued and under discussed in our, in our current hyper singleton, hyper individualized society. And it's not that I don't think capitalism or sort of specialization in labor is bad. I think it's, we potentially may have over specialized mm-hmm. for now, mm-hmm. you know, so many things are just transactional and like when you engage a service, I don't care about you as a 360 human. It's just like, I need X from you at Y time. And right. folks that have this over index on that game, on that system. Yeah. You don't, you don't have like this, this familiar community, this tribal knowledge. And I think, and this is maybe extrapolating a little bit too far, but I think the popularization of content like podcasts where it, 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 I think it mimics what would have been like the fireside chats around mm-hmm. a fire pit. Mm-hmm where it's like interesting groups within a tribe or the wise men and women of the tribe are just sharing anecdote stories like battle scars and the other folks like learning and feeling a uh, part of this community, this tribe. And I think that, you know, we're never going to go back to hunter gatherer tribes, right? Like I would not advocate for that because I think clearly, you know, having some sort of capitalism hierarchy organization has, I mean, these systems of people have dominated the the less organized people, right? So it's like, we're not going to go backwards, but it's, I think back to your point, how do we be inspired by some of the patterns that have worked well in the past and seeing if there's a delta between what we have today versus previously and, and seeing if there's some of these things, especially with like a close-knit community of jujitsu players or whatever hobby, yep. right? Like it's, I, I think jujitsu is like a very popular one in, in recent days, but it, it just needs to be some shared interest group. Yep that stimulates something that's beyond like, Hey, I, I'm doing a transaction with you. Right. Right. Yeah. And it, it's, uh, it's funny. I really wish I could cook something up where maybe 15 hours a week I do what I do, my podcasting and writing and all that stuff. And I really wish like 15 hours a week I was a farmer or something, yeah. you know, like totally different outside doing something else. But there, you made the point early that, uh, Specialization is kind of though where you get that comparative advantage, but man, it can, that, that can grind you down to a nub too. Like your world becomes so focused, so specialized that you, you have to really work pretty hard to carve out that, that I don't even want to call it balance, but the other, you know, something other than just work or. No, I think that's interesting. I think, I think everyone's figuring that out. I think I'm trying to figure that out, especially in this new work from home, quarantine, shelter in place reality. It's like. There is, I think, a freshness to be able to reset templates. And I think I've really, I think, enjoyed it. And I think it might sound weird, but I think I've just been super fortunate to not have family members or close colleagues, you know, be affected directly with the mm-hmm. disease. You know, a lot of our business, we can run online or remotely or, or and be stay productive. So I think it's literally just been like a turning point to just catalog, to, as I've been using it as a catalyst to just like, reshape parts of my lifestyle that I didn't really like. Right. So it's like, I think it's a super fortunate privilege, whatever place to be where it's, you know, my head's above water and I kind of think ahead. But I think if, you know, for folks who might be listening, I, I think it is something that you can kind of make a lemonade out of lemons where it's like, okay, there is a reshift here. It's an easy excuse to kind of reshift. But I think that point is that I think we're all Renaissance men and women. I don't think we are evolved to be like the soldier ant or the worker ant or the queen ant or the drone ant. 
I mean, we, we, our, our brains are big enough to have multiple interests. And I think, again, with a, in, a, in, a, in a capitalistic competition environment, if you're specializing, you're going to have competitive advantage. But that might be net optimal for an economy, but it might not be net optimal for you as an individual human with emotions right. and other non-economic desires or objectives. And I think right. that's a question that we as a society need to answer because, and I think people are starting to talk about it culturally, politically, where it's like, is GDP like the best way to measure a country's overall health? And it's likely like the dollars one generates is an important part of value, but it's not, I, it's clearly not the only thing of value. And right. uh, I think if, a if all of your kids life, are on antidepressants, is that, could we shave a few GDP, you know, a few <laughs> pieces off of the GDP, but, you know, have enough family time and social time so that our kids are not all on, on antidepressants? Like that might be a net win overall, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that's like actually what I've been thinking a little bit more about. And I think it's like also a, a kind of an interesting pivot point going towards resiliency. And it sounds like one of the things that we overlapped on is working with folks at kind of the elite performance within our first responders or service members. And I know that one of our mutual friends who served in the Navy, you know, connected with you around helping build out some of the resi resiliency programs. Can you talk about that in, in terms of how you kind of straddled from the nutrition, the ancestral, the paleo, the ketogenic diet to also kind of speaking and, and gaining expertise around resiliency. And I would say that resiliency to me is just an aspect of aesthetic or a philosophy of well-lived life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one, that was the most enjoyable work I've ever done. Like that was the coolest bit of work that I did was uh, participating in the Naval Special Warfare Resiliency Program. And I got to speak to the SEAL teams, the special boat teams, but then also their families. And what was cool about that, and it's something that I, I think we need to pull a, a page out of programs like that and apply it to many more people in our society, particularly uh, police and, and firefighters, they just recognized that the, the toll that was occurring both on the operators and on their families was, was kind of unacceptable. You know, these... These guys, when they're home, they train six to nine months of the year. Then they'll deploy another six to nine months of the year. Then they come back and they have to like reintegrate with the family. The family has been largely abandoned during that time, only dealing with other people in the same unknown situation where they literally don't know where they're typically the, the wives know where their husbands are on the planet, you know, and I mean, I can't can't imagine a more stressful scenario than that. You know, you know, they're doing dangerous work somewhere in some dangerous place, but you don't know exactly where it is. And, uh, but you know, there was just really massive problems that grew up within those, those communities. And somebody had the foresight to look at, at resilience as a path to improving the outcomes for all of these people. And in physics, resilience is this, it's this giant equation, but it, it describes a system where when the system is tested, there's some, some flex in the system, but then an improvement in its ability to then deal with subsequent stressors. And so they looked at as many different features of folks' lives as they could, their nutrition, alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, nicotine, uh, finances, like whether or not people were, were making smart financial decisions because that can really provide a massive risk exposure, social support and community and whatnot. And so I was asked to come in and really talk about the, 
nutrition, sleep, stimulants, and booze considerations within a, a group of SEALs, which was hilarious to stand up in front of a bunch of SEALs and tell them about how to consume their alcohol and whatnot. And I, 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 uh, it, it was cool. Uh, it, at the end of each one of these events, they would vote on who they wanted to come back to do another one. And I, 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 for the duration of the program, I kept getting voted to come back. So I, either they felt sorry for me or they, they actually found some, some value in it. But, you know, I would talk to them about things like, Hey, if you really want to have great sleep, like I would build the case about why sleep was great, which was hard to do in a community that wears a badge of honor around their ability to deal with sleep deprivation. But I, I, I made the case that, you know, yeah, you guys went through this selection process, but selection is different than what you want to do day to day. Like if you need to get selected for getting kicked in the balls, that's great, but you don't necessarily want to do that every single day, you know? And, and so I kind of built this whole case around this stuff and then like the, the booze part, I, I would talk about, you know, you want to you want to drink alcohol as far away from sleep as possible because then it tends to negatively impact your sleep as minimally as possible. And inevitably, because these guys are super sharp, somebody would raise their hand and they're like, so when I wake up, I should start drinking. And I was <laughs> like, yes, you know, and, and so it was a it was a really cool thing to interact with these guys. But I would talk about just, you know, adequate nutrition, getting proper protein being aware of like glycemic load and that all, uh, uh, when these guys are home and at a relative lower stress index, then their bodies may respond one way. And then when they get deployed, stress, sleep deprivation, like, do you guys notice GI problems? Oh yeah, I do. Well, you might need to think about these different factors so that you're not like sitting on the can or, or, you know, you're dug into a hillside wedding to take a shot. And then you realize that you're going to like void your, yeah. <laughs> you know, your bowels there. So, um, I was able to give them some, some real world practical stuff around the food, alcohol, and even like stimulants, like caffeine versus nicotine. Like I, I made the case that if they wanted to move a certain distance under physical load, like 50 to 60 milligrams of caffeine per hour, which is not that much. These right. guys were really cranky about that, but that was kind of the upper limit of what the ergogenic effects of caffeine were and taking more than that really wasn't going to help them. But if they got into a situation in which they needed to be alert, but then potentially they would be done with their, their situation and they could immediately go to sleep. They wouldn't necessarily want to use caffeine. They might, might want to use something like nicotine gum or nicotine lozenges because that will keep you awake, but it clears out of the system very, very quickly. And also it maintains fine motor skills much better than caffeine does. Caffeine tends to make you jittery. And so I threw a bunch of this stuff out there and the guys like pressure tested it and they were like, this really works. You know, when they would need to be up for some extended period of time, they would use caffeine earlier in their cycle. And then when they would get ready to be near the end, the last two hours, they'd use a little bit of nicotine mints. They would put on some blue blockers. They'd get in a very, as cold an environment as they could. They would sleep as well as they could, make sure they had adequate protein. When they would go kick their heels up, they would try to get the booze done early and then, you know, have a time before they went to bed. But the net net was that these, these guys really reported markable improvements in their lives. And I, the really cool thing is I got to speak with the families of these, these service members. And so talking to the wives, talking to the kids, helping them to figure out some better nutritional strategies so that they could have better 
resilience. You know, feeding kids a bunch of garbage carbs doesn't lead to emotional stability. Like this is where they're, they end up all over the map. So not, not saying that you wanted to, to try to turn them into like CrossFit paleo elitists or anything, but just making sure like, make sure every single meal and snack has a hunk of real identifiable protein. And then we'll be more flexible from there. But it was cool. I got great feedback from from the the families that those really basic nutrition interventions and paying attention to when the kids went to sleep. And maybe you don't want them to be on on electronic devices, you know, immediately before bed and stuff like that. It really helped. And that that was cool that this very basic non-technical information really appeared to move the needle on on these folks that live a, a very, very difficult life. And it, it was, uh, I was able to take that same information and then offer it up to police and fire entities all throughout the United States. And I would say that those folks have it, it arguably even more challenging than the special operators do because the operators, when they deploy, they're gone. Like the, they're wearing one hat for sometimes six months at a time, whereas police and firefighters, particularly cops, they'll wear three hats in the course of a, a 36 hour you know, time frame. There'll be a parent, a coach, a husband or a wife, a police officer, and like on and on. And each each one of those things is just this dramatically jolting transition to go from one thing to another. You know, it's it's uh, it's such a hard uh, way of life. And then right now, like it, it it's it's really tough on those folks. So I'm I'm um really grateful that I've been able to do some work uh, in those areas and try to try to help those people as much as I can. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we should tell more of those stories because it, I think humanizes most of us have, you know, are not service members or have experience with policing or firefighting. And I think it's become just as much as we need police to, and, and to empathize with the everyday citizenry. I think vice versa. I think it's just like we're all on the same team. Yeah. And here's something that I, I think is interesting, but uh, we had recognized that and I was working with my good friend, Dr. Kirk Parsley. He's a retired SEAL and he's a, a sleep expert. He had dug up some research that suggested like 85 or 90% of excessive force cases within police had occurred within 12 hours of a shift change. So where somebody might've been on nights and they shift to days or they go from days or they go to nights. And some of these places actually have people on these, these jigsaw patterns. Data, where they're right? Oh, insane. it's insane. It, it, it is a guarantee for killing these people early. And also, when you think about how cranky and unemotionally adept you are when sleep deprived. So there's another study. Um, they had husbands and wives. They would sleep deprive one member of the married couple. Then they would ask both members about the, you know, how lovable are they? Are they, they sensitive? Both people, when when one person was sleep deprived, both people basically said that the other person was a huge jerk. And so you think about that just as as a baseline. Then we subject our our first responders to these really gnarly shift change scenarios. And what what we were able to do in a few uh, jurisdictions is recommend that they do away with that that super randomized schedule, put people on a schedule, keep them on a schedule. And when they change schedule, keep them on light duty for the first two or three days until they begin to adapt to it. Don't switch them from one schedule to another and stick them right back out into a, a potentially really high, high stress, uh, high volatility situation. 
And we don't have a data on this yet, but just, again, the empirical feedback is that it has dramatically improved the quality of life of folks. It seems like these excessive force scenarios are less. And so there's some really, uh, you know, this resiliency stuff is really important. Like our social fabric is coming apart at the seams right now and could just looking at, at something as banal as like shift change, could that dramatically improve some of these excessive force scenarios. If it could, then might by God, like we really need to do something to to help facilitate all that stuff. 100%. And I think as you're talking through the program, it's not even, it sounds like the resiliency program that you've come up with should be taught to everyone. I mean, these are, I think should be, whether it's, you know, online, having more content out there, or just like literally part of our education system of how to properly live. And I think right. that's one thing that I think, again, is like lost in the, I would say like the abstraction of the education system where, okay, we're going to learn algebra, we're going to learn geometry, we're going to learn world history, we're going to learn art history. But it's like, okay, how are you going to like actually live day to day as a normal human contributing member of society? Like right. how does nutrition play into it? Are you, should you drink Monster at 9 p.m. when you're about to like play a video game before you fall asleep for the next day? And, and these are like, I think probably obvious answers for folks who've been following our podcast or think about health and wellness and, and, and performance. But these, these are not obvious. These are not like gotten truths that people have right. learned. Like one has to be proactive to even engage on those concepts. And it sounds like we should be pushing this out a little bit more as a part of a way to just build a more robust society, a more robust citizenry. Yeah, it, 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 absolutely. And I, I would definitely make the case that for our first responders, they manifest everything else that the rest of society does only earlier and more intense. They, they develop type two diabetes and cardiovascular disease earlier and more profoundly. I forget the exact number, but I want to say the average lifespan of law enforcement is something like 56 or 60 years old or something like that. Like it's, it's almost two decades shorter than the average lifespan. And, um, there's a lot we could do to improve all of that. Yeah. I, I guess that's all I would say on that. Like there's just a lot, there's a lot of low hanging fruit there that we could, could go after to try to improve these situations, which I think clearly would have benefit beneficial knock-on effects to to all of the world. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I want to let's let's put it in a stop there. I almost feel like we could have a whole discussion, a whole hour, hour and a half, just talking about resiliency and mindset and and all these things. And I think it is interesting as we talked about in, in the beginning of, of our podcast here that it feels like as one gets thoughtful, reflective on nutrition on optimizing the individual you can't help but realize that a lot of the institutional infrastructure that we have as a society is not perfect either and you want to just almost like you can't help but just like comment or help or want to contribute and educate so like if if folks want me and rob rob and i to dive in more we'll definitely take questions and we'll have to invite rob back on to talk more about that i know that you know one thing i want to make sure we cover before we uh, wrap up here is your new book. And I think one of the interesting conversations in nutrition in recent times is this debate between veganism on one hand, you have carnivores on the other hand, and then obviously most of us are omnivores. I think there's an interesting nutritional conversation there, but I think what's less spoken about is what is actually the truth around the environmental costs, right? Between different types of produce, different types of food production, as well as 
I think one thing to talk about is also just the morality ethics of eating, killing, consuming other animals. Um, want to just, you know, give a kind of that as a platform or segue into your, your new book that was just recently published. Yeah. Thank you. It's, it's, um, it's a lot to unpack. We, we worked for four years on the book. We also have a, a movie with the same title, Sacred Cow, that is kind of supporting the, the book and, and tells a little bit more of a story arc. Whereas with the book, there is a bit of a story arc to it, but we're, we're unpacking the health, environmental, and ethical considerations of a meat-inclusive food system. So there have been whole books written on these single topics. And when we turned our initial manuscript in, it was 600 pages. It got whittled down to 280 pages. And it, it, it's still a, a spicy meatball. Like there's, there's a, a lot to it. But, you know, like on, let's say the ethics consideration, folks will put forward this idea that if they eat a vegan diet, then they're, they're not causing any harm. They're not directly killing anything. And I can see, and, 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 you know, before we even get there, I think that it is completely reasonable to desire and to work towards causing the least amount of harm to organisms around us as, as we should. Like, I, I just can't think of an ethical argument for just mistreating anybody or anything, you know, and, and there will be varying degrees of what people consider mistreatment. Some people at this point believe that we shouldn't own pets because that's mistreatment. So, I mean, it, it, there's just kind of an infinite spectrum around this stuff. But when you really get in and look at this topic, it's framed in philosophy under this, this concept called the least harm principle. And when you look at some of the, the, research that's been done around least harm principle and our food system, what's interesting is that a, a row crop centric food system that produces grains and legumes primarily and, and whatnot, it kills a remarkable number of organisms, you know? And if we're going to compare, say like a mammal for a mammal, like even though a cow is larger than a mouse, they're both mammals. They both have similar levels of intelligence, similar types of sophistication, when you start comparing things on a one-to-one -one basis like that, it appears that row crops kill more animals than what we would kill in a, a grass-centric system that employs lots of large ruminants that, that you know, eat grass and then we, we, we eat the ruminants and then we have fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, uh, some, some tuber-type items. Like, those seem to produce the least amount of collateral damage, but... Folks forget or, or they either forget or ignore the fact that there is, there is death associated with anything, you know, and they assume or will paint the picture that because they're eating a vegan plate of food, that there was no death attached on the front end of that. And that's just not accurate. Some people will say that their intentionality is to not cause harm. So that, that kind of gives them a pass. For me, that's a really tough one. You know, it's like I don't intend to to do a whole variety of things. You know, I don't intend to cause problems when I'm I'm driving and I try to be courteous and whatnot. But everybody, when they get in their car, they have to accept that just being on the roadway, I'm both endangering other people's lives and endangering my life. Like there's just an inherent risk attached to yeah, that. And it's also and hard to so judge intent as well, right? At, at end of the day, yes. what we can only measure yeah. is results. So I think it's like, yeah, you, we can talk about intent all day long. Like I yeah. didn't intend to kill someone, but if I did, it's like, what is the, what is the jury going to say? Right. Right. 
Right. And, and so, again, there's, there's a great paper, and I, I can forward it to you, from a professor at, at the University of Oregon that looked at this least harm principle topic. And he really broke it down, you know, in this, this almost like a life cycle analysis perspective, like it was remarkably thorough and made the case again that a food system built around large grazing animals would net net kill fewer organisms than this row crop centric model. And this is kind of ignoring some of the the potential around, say, like reversing desertification that that we can use large grazing animals for. In the the film, we actually go down and look at a a, uh, a regenerative farm or ranch down in the Chihuahuan Desert, and the Chihuahuan Desert is just looks like a a moonscape. Like there's virtually nothing there, and we had to drive for five hours to get out to this this ranch. And then you just start seeing grass everywhere. I mean, like eyebrow deep grass. And this this rancher down there had learned this regenerative ranching, farming methodology from the Savory Institute and had started rotating his cattle in this manner that mimics the way that grazing animals move across grasslands. Something that we've done over the course of time is killed all of the large predators within uh, grassland systems. And so where once these, these large grazing animals would move in these packed herds and eat everything in their path and then move on. And in the process of eating, they would pee and poo and break up the ground and, and provide nutrients to the soil. And then they would be gone for weeks or months, which would then allow that area to repair and recover. And actually, from a resilience perspective, become stronger because of the mild insult, you know, placed there and, of you know, due to the nutrient inclusion and what have you. But when you remove the predator-prey interaction, then these animals spread out and they go and they eat this thing and they eat that thing. And what they tend to do is just eat the choice pieces that are in front of them, optimum foraging strategy. And that can lead to overgrazing because they'll eat the choice grasses that they really like, ignore the other things that normally would get eaten in the, the process of, of what's called mob grazing. And then just as that stuff starts growing again, they come back and eat it yet again. So it, this goes beyond just even rotational grazing, although that can be a part of it. But by using portable electric fencing, you can keep animals on grass in fairly tight bunch because they compete with each other to get that 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 grass and the the uh, the foliage that's growing, and then you move them to another spot the next day and another spot the next day. This is not confined area feedlots where animals are on top of each other. They're out in the open on grass, but you are keeping them fairly tightly bunched to mimic that predator prey interaction. This is another this is another spot where taking a, a piece out of the evolutionary biology playbook is a critical feature to these systems working. But when you do all that, what, what we find is that, and there have been life cycle analyses done on this, properly raised pastured beef sequesters more carbon out of the atmosphere than it releases. And it's interesting because this outfit called Qantas does these life cycle analyses, and they did one on the Impossible Burger, and the Impossible Burger was a net carbon releaser. Whereas the White Oaks Pastures grass-fed meat was a net carbon sink, and the numbers were exactly the opposite. So if you ate an Impossible Burger and a White Oaks Pastures real burger, you were at net carbon zero. But there's an enormous opportunity there to not only produce food, but to actually sequester carbon on, on both the existing grasslands, but these huge tracts of land, like in the Chihuahuan Desert, 
they've recovered a million acres of land in the Chihuahuan Desert that is now grassland. The natives that live in the area didn't even know grass could grow there. Like the whole area of the Great Basin, Reno to Salt Lake City down to, to Las Vegas, that used to be grassland. And now it's a, it's a desert because it became overgrazed due to the removal of, of large predators. And so that whole predator-prey interaction thing changed. But the, there's a, just as a standalone item, and it, it, it takes a long time to get into like the methane emissions and stuff like that. Yeah. No, but I, I think that point that you just mentioned, I think that I was hoping that you would, we would talk about that. I'm glad you brought it up, which is that literally domestication or, or farming of, of, of cattle or ruminants can be net negative on carbon. And I think yeah. when you actually yeah. total up the costs of some of these over-processed vegan foods where you're shipping grain from overseas and then you have to make the plastic wrapping and the processing and you ship it in carts around, all that stuff adds up. And when you're comparing from an environmental perspective, like was the intent of trying to be more green, but you're actually doing more damage. I think this data needs to be out there more. I think when I was investigating, reading about this year, two years ago, just like, wow, like the, storytelling the narrative the, the propaganda on one side is so powerful that i think the average listener is like oh yeah, yeah vegans is probably better for environment better for my health better for ethics but they don't actually go that second third fourth right. layer deeper. right yeah and it's uh it's fascinating it's a it's a really tough one to unpack because it's a little bit like asymmetric warfare and that the more vegan centric folks can just like lob the the cognitive equivalent of like a hand grenade over a fence or like meat causes cancer meat destroys the environment and they run and there's there's literature and and organizations that make this seem like a credible idea and then for someone like me to unpack that it's literally a mini phd dissertation in like soil ecology and and you know uh, carbon cycles and whatnot and so it's a it's a very asymmetric uh process it's um, difficult to get on top of, but the, the, it, a fascinating thing that has been happening, even though the World Health Organization, um, Centers for Disease Control, like lots of big entities had been advocating for eating less meat because ostensibly it would improve environmental considerations of, of uh, say, climate change. The developing world has been really pushing back on this stuff. Because what's being suggested is that these developing countries should abandon their traditional food systems, which are, are animal products inclusive, and that they should be completely dependent on the, the row crop exports of the United States. And these folks know that that is potentially suicide. Like if something happens with our food system and they have no food system there, not only would that gut their economic infrastructure, but they are wholly dependent on the, you know, the fact that we can even keep our current food system going. So there's been a remarkable amount of, of pushback on, on these types of things. And, uh, there was a, a great paper from the proceedings of national Academy of sciences where it looked, if we removed all animal products out of the U S food system, it said that it would guarantee that people would eat more food because of the lack of, of protein. So they would eat more calories, People would gain more weight. There would be much more nutrient deficiencies. And the only effect it would have on environmental considerations is that it would reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 2.6%. Yeah, something nominal. It's like so if a, we, if, a rounding error compared yeah, if to transportation. If we stop taking flights, right? If we literally stop taking right. cross-continental flights. 
<laughs> I mean, that's yeah. like that's like 50, 50 cows worth of emissions. Right, right. So it, it, it's interesting, but again, it's a, it's a lot to unpack. We actually started in the book, we looked at the nutritional considerations of a meat-inclusive versus a non-meat-inclusive diet because particularly at the, at the early parts of the life cycle and the later parts of life cycle, children and, and the elderly seem to disproportionately benefit from highly nutrient-dense diets, which, which animal products are, are kind of the, the most nutrient-dense products that we can get. And protein plays this really critical role in this story. And so it's hard to have an ethics discussion absent the notion that if we feed kids a largely vegan or vegetarian diet, that they, they will most likely have nutrient deficiencies and failures to thrive. And in this time where we're talking about like privilege and access, it's ironic that one of the greatest distinguishers between a middle class versus a poor family is the amount of animal product access that the middle class or rich family has. And there, there's only a few studies that have been done around this. But in Africa, there was a study that looked at poor children in, in a developing nation kind of scenario where the three different groups emerged. One group was given more total calories. One group was given a dairy supplement and one group was given a meat supplement. The meat supplemented group performed better academically. They were taller. They had fewer health problems, including colds, flu, you know, and infections. And their cognitive performance was better than either of the other two groups. And so this is, you know, there are programs rolling out like Meatless Mondays, which people will say, is it going to kill you to, to not eat meat, or, you know, for one day a week and have a salad or whatever? But where this ends up really impacting things is uh, situations like the New York City school system, where 70% of the kids are low income, and the, the only meal or meals that they get are oftentimes from the school system. 10% of the New York school system, the kids are considered homeless. And so as terrible as most of those food options are already, they're suggesting removing the little bit of animal products that are available there. And it, it's not being replaced with like pearled barley or lentils. Like it, it is just more processed crap. So again, that, that like uh, good intention, I think is being used in a kind of a nefarious way. The methods being used are, no, we're not saying don't eat meat. We're just saying less meat or better meat. And, but it, it is a kind of the skinny end of the wedge of opening that door. And I, I do think that it's going to disproportionately affect children, poor children, poor families. And these are people that are already disproportionately negatively impacted by a whole host of kind of sociopolitical factors. And now a largely white vegan centric group of people are suggesting that nobody should eat meat anywhere. And I, I just find that incredibly hubristic and, and, uh, I have some very strong beliefs in a variety of topics, but I feel very nervous about suggesting that everybody should be forced into following any of my ideas at all. And uh, there's not really that parity on the other side of the fence. I think you just like super well articulated. I think a lot of like the key rationale of pushing it back against that vegan narrative. And I think you're exactly spot on where I think you and I are, are just like very opinionated on what we believe should be implemented for ourselves, right? I think I, we could have like opinions on like this little micro tweak versus that little micro right. tweak. But I think we're, I think I'm humble to not say like hey, everyone follow me because I'm infallible. And I think that's where it's very dangerous where 
yes, maybe if someone really prioritizes intention and they choose not to eat meat, that's great. It's a free society. You can put whatever you want in your mouth and choose where to put your dollars. But to then say, especially for disadvantaged populations who don't even really have access to different foods and telling them to have suboptimal nutrition now because of your social you know, social justice agenda. That's where it's goes beyond, I think, misinformation or from a good, a good place and actually becoming harmful to the integrity of our society, right? You're going to make our population weaker. We're going to have right. to take care of them in the healthcare system sooner than later. Well, and so these are the people that are, yeah, these are, and again, the, these are the people that are already the most marginalized. They're already facing the greatest challenges and now we're suggesting that they should have less access to, and there's lots of problems that need to be addressed, but, but man, when we're, when we're thinking about kids and their cognitive development and, and, uh, physical development and their health, that nutrition piece is really powerful. And, and, uh, we, we do a really good job of unpacking the, the literature on this stuff and, and vegan and vegetarian people in general tend to be more nutrient deficient and in kids, it, it's very, very damaging. Like a, a kid who doesn't get adequate iron or B vitamins or zinc will suffer cognitive and developmental deficiencies that will never be fixed. There is no fixing that once that, that die is cast. What's ironic is that we're recommending a diet that looks very similar to the diets that are forced upon people in developing nation scenarios. And an interesting sub-feature of this is that there's very good studies that as Africa has slowly improved in its economic status, it is consuming more meat and people are healthier and living longer. So it goes in direct opposition to kind of the, the narrative out of like the, the China study type folks. And I, ironically, one of them, it's something virtually no one knows the publisher that published the China study, they are a vegan publisher. They are the ones that published our book. And it was largely because they had not heard about like some of these soil sequestration topics and stuff like that. And they're like, we can't not support this. Like this is a critically important information that people need to know. So uh, these guys took a real risk on us because I mean, they... <laughs> Their whole business model is catering to to uh, vegan readers, and so them taking on this book was a a remarkable kind of a moral stand and a reassessment of what what they've been doing for the last like fifteen years. Yeah, my hope here is that I'm optimistic that all these folks are have good intention and they just have different sets of assumptions or data. And if folks like yourself can re-highlight how the math nets out, how the science actually nets out, how the data and evidence actually nets out, then hopefully they're open-minded to start evolving their position, right? Because I think right. we would all, I think everyone would agree, we want people to live more ethically, more morally, and more healthy with better access to everyone. I think that's probably like close to universal goal. Right. And if the data, if we're seeing the same reality, a logical, rational person should be able to follow those dots. Right. And I think it's an important voice to be out there because, again, I think the mainstream uh, kind of education or propaganda, whatever you want to call it, is very much omitting some of these really interesting and important evolving understanding of how all these things actually come together in, in, in an evolving society. So please check out Sacred Cow. It's in all bookstores and any any place you can want to buy a book. 
If there are bookstores open, yeah, yeah, I don't know if there are any. <laughs> I don't know if like Amazon seems Amazon. to be the only one because I think Amazon's down. doing great without anyone yeah. referring business to them. So we'll wrap it here, Rob. So where do people find you? Where do people stay in touch? So if folks want to dig a little bit more on this this uh, sustainability topic, our website is sacredcow.org. And then beyond that, they can find me over at robwolf.com, two Bs in the Rob. Awesome, Rob. Really a pleasure. I, it was a super fun conversation to just touch upon so many aspects of human performance. So very fun. We'll have to have you back on to go into more deep rabbit holes, maybe get into a little bit of trouble with folks that want to argue with us. But overall, super fun conversation. Thanks for taking the time. Cheers. Cheers.